This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join in on the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode or any other, please join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. to another episode of Warp 5. I'm your host, Brandon Shamutella, and joining me, as always, is my ever-possessed, ever-foul-mouthed partner, Patrick Devlin. I don't even know how to jump into that one in the right way. Okay, so, how are you, Brandon? I am doing very, very good. We're uh, we're going to have a fun little episode today. We're going to be doing another movie night. We're closely, we're, we're rapidly approaching the end of our movie night series. After this one, we've only got two more to go. And we're very excited. We will definitely wrap this up before episode 200. And uh, we've we've uh, we're trying to work on something for episode 200 because that's coming up pretty quick. Hey, Patrick, what's this? 194, I think. It yeah, is. yeah. Uh, yep, six more after this. And uh, six more after this. 200. You joined us for 130, right? 130 was your first. Yes. Yeah. So. I'll, yep. So you've been uh, almost almost 70 70 episodes old. And I missed, you know, only one or two or something like that in, the, in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, you've been trucking along with me pretty good. I, I started with episode, I think it was 92, and then uh, came on as a co-host for 94, and and I've been around since then. So yeah, episode 200 is coming close, coming up fast. Yep. But today, we couldn't talk about this very special movie without a very special guest. The man, the legend, the myth, the amazing Tom Elliott. How are you doing? Gentlemen, it's a pleasure to be here. The power of Christ compelled me to come today, and I'm so happy it did. Thanks for having me. Awesome. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, I Just before we get started, though, I'm a little bit hungry. Did anybody want to have a bowl of this nice pea soup that I have? <laughs> no, thank you. I'll have you. some of that, please. <laughs> no, you're good? Okay, excellent. Uh, well, just in case you guys can't figure out what we're talking about today, we are going to be talking about The Exorcist, the film from, what was it, 1977, I believe 73. it was? Seventy-three. What do I know? I'm just the host. <laughs> 1973, directed by William Friedkin, uh, which, interestingly enough, one of our first episodes of the movie series, we did a movie called The Wages of Fear uh, for movie night here on Warp 5, and William Friedkin actually directed the remake of The Wages of Fear. It's a film called Sorcerer. Uh, we talked a little bit about that as well. Uh, I kind of just touched base on it when we did that episode. Um, I like Sorcerer. It's good. It's nowhere near as good as The Wages of Fear, um, but it is a very good movie nonetheless. Uh, I believe Quentin Tarantino actually prefers the Sorcerer remake to the original, um, but that's kind of just a little tidbit. Um, but it does have an amazing score by Tangerine Dream, and I played some of that music over on one of my early episodes of Cinematic Sound Radio's Breaking the Waves. So uh, that's a little bit of tying into some of my other podcasting ventures. But today we're going to be talking about this movie. And I wanted to get Tom on because I knew he really liked this movie. And Patrick hadn't seen it before. And every time I tried to watch it, I've fallen asleep because I found it incredibly boring. <laughs> So, this is either the third time, but I'm actually thinking it's the fourth time so that I've tried to watch it. And I mean, like, 
I'm a big horror movie fan, and I was watching horror movies all through my teens, and this one just never worked for me. And while I did finish it this time, um, I did sit down, and I was a little tired when I sat down, and I'm like, oh, dear Lord, what have I done to myself? And I was having a tough time getting through, so I actually, about halfway through, I did actually have to get up and walk around and, like, go upstairs. And, like, so I, I'm like, oh, my goodness gracious. And I, okay, so I did like the back half a little bit more, but we'll, we'll kind of get into the discussion. Patrick, this is your first time watching it. Just what are your initial impressions? What did you think? This is one of the slowest moving movies I've ever watched. You had a tough one. Yeah, on I, one I don't too. know. I mean, I just felt. I just felt like it kept going and going and going nowhere, mm-hmm. and then it was kind of just over. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it it wasn't as scary as I thought it would. I mean, I, I get it; it's kind of a classic, but like being that TV has changed so much, you know, just a little child screaming curses at people isn't as frightening as it might have been back in 1973. I guess I don't. I don't mm-hmm. know. I, I just it just seemed to take forever to get somewhere, and then you're like, oh. That's it. It's over. Mm-hmm. Okay, Tom, tell us what we missed. Tell us why we're wrong. You know, it's difficult to if someone if someone's bored by something, it, that's a very kind of visceral, natural reaction, isn't it? It's hard to talk someone out of being <laughs> bored by something. So I'm not sure I'm really going to succeed on that on that count. I, I think for me. It is part of 70s movie making. A lot of those kind of movies just have this pace to them. I mean, William Friedkin's other movies, The French Connection, one of my favorite movies again. Mm-hmm. But they just really pace them that that way in those days a lot of the time. You know, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation, great movie, but it's so slow. And like The Exorcist, it takes forever to build to this sort of shattering climax i guess you didn't find the um the climax in the exorcist that shattering but for me it's you do really need to set that time aside probably not be tired um but what i like about it is it's a very show don't tell style of movie making you you live within you live with these people for a while you you sort of spend time in their life rather than you know being told through exposition what their life is you just spend some time with them and Mm -hmm. and that's what i kind of enjoy about it i i get it you know i get it if someone tells me that they find it boring that you know i i do understand that criticism uh but for me it's not it's just about spending time with those characters for me Mm -hmm. paced storytelling is never usually a problem for me like i'm i'm an experienced film watcher and like i'm not trying to like negate your comments or anything but it's just i'm so surprised that this movie has resonated with so many people and it's just not resonating with me like i don't think that i need to like everything that every like everybody likes but i do find that i like things that most people don't like right Mm -hmm. um but i mean when it comes to movies like jaws is a paced film Mm -hmm. you know in a different way right um but as paced movies like like even Spielberg's uh, Close Encounters from the Third Kind, like that's a really paced film, right? It takes its time to yeah. tell the story. Not a lot happens. It's a lot of exposition and a lot of spending time with the characters as well. But I'm just I'm surprised that this movie's never resonated because I like horror, you know. And there is a lot of great stuff in this movie. So this time around, like I don't hate this movie. I actually enjoyed it quite a bit, you know. And mm-hmm. I love, you know, I love Max von Sydow. You know, and I love Max von Sydow from his Swedish films that I watch because I watch a lot of foreign cinema. You know, like uh, The Seventh Seal and and think The Virgin Spring and things like that, d- directed by Ingmar Bergman. Um, not to mention the Canadian classic Strange Brew, right? So I love Max von Sydow. That was, you know, have you guys seen Strange Brew? I I haven't, but Max von Sydow has been old forever, hasn't he? You know, <laughs> oh I think goodness, he was yeah. born. He was born like seventy years old or something. <laughs> he was born old. Um, now, and the other thing, like, Ellen Burstyn here, who's the, the mum in this movie, like, I love Ellen Burstyn, and, and, you know, funny tangent, Ellen Burstyn's the reason I no longer hold any credibility with the Academy Awards. When mm. she lost the Academy Award for Best Actress to Julia Roberts in, I think it was 2000, like, she, Ellen Burstyn was in, um, 
Oh my goodness, what can I remember the name of it? Um, Requiem for a Dream. Okay. And Julia Roberts was in Aaron Brockovich. Now, Aaron Brockovich is a great movie, but Ellen Burson's performance in Requiem for a Dream is like, that is in a definite Academy Award winning role. And when she mm-hmm. lost, I'm like, screw you, Academy. I don't even care what you guys ever say again. <laughs> so, I don't, I don't think Anyways. Requiem got uh, too much credit in terms of awards, though, did it at all? No, well, it wasn't nominated for a lot, but Ellen Burstyn stole that movie. Like, holy yeah, I crap, see that. that was... I really like that Anyways. movie, but that's another story. Yeah, we'll, we'll do that on our, our After Dark <laughs> movie hours yeah. for Warp 5. <laughs> so, okay, so there's a couple of things, like, okay, there's one thing that I want to ask, because watching this, I just don't get, I just don't get how it's related to the plot. Uh, can Go. you explain to me why the statue was defaced in the church? Um, hmm. No, I I mean it. I think that I'm not necessarily sure that that is directly involved with the story. I, I can't remember, um, but I know she like she makes that model, doesn't she, Reagan? Mm-hmm. And uh, it is similar to the statue of Pazuzu that Father Merrin sees when he's in Iraq earlier on. Uh, I can't remember the defacement of the statue, but it, is it similar to Pazuzu when it's done? No, I'm not they too like sure on that. Okay, so if you guys haven't seen the movie and whatnot, they, they like put like a phallic symbol on the statue and like these horns coming out of where the breasts would be. Like there was this weird mm. defacement that happened to this thing in the church. Like I don't know, half an hour into the film or something like that. You know, I I think it's just like a lot of the movie. It, it is about faith and and lack of faith and um, you know, it, it's just another sort of aspect of it. I think, I don't think it's, it's that big a, a part of the film, mm-hmm. but it, it is almost like, well, you know, nothing is sacred in, in this movie. They're going to go, they're going to do whatever, um, they want to do to tell the story and probably shock the audience. And, and I think part of that is, is showing that, you know, people have faith, people don't have faith and, and people can be, you know, quite, um, disrespectful of faith, I, I, but I don't think it's it's really that big a thing. I think it's just part of the day to day life that they're going through. Mm-hmm. Okay, now this is going off on a bit of a different tangent of a direction, but for the discussion here, I'd like to ask you guys both, and I guess Tom, I'll start with you. Like, what are your thoughts on like demonic possession and stuff like this? Like, what do you think that this is something that actually happens? Like, I'll I'll start and explain with. You know, the last church that I went to, and I think even the current church that I go to, like, they believe that this kind of stuff can happen, Okay. right? And I mean, like, as a person of faith, like, this is something that I've kind of struggled with, where I don't mm. quite know. Like, I, I, I'm kind of the person where they gave the explanation in the movie where it's like, yeah, we, we have this in the past, but now that we've discovered, you know, like, psychiatry and mental health, we, we have explanations for this kind of thing. But, I mean, like, there's still people today that believe that this kind of thing can actually happen. And so I'm trying to struggle with that in the movie itself. And maybe that's kind of my interpretation of why I have trouble with the movie, because it's not something that I believe in, really. But there's tons of movies that I watch where there's things that I don't believe in, you know? So I don't mm. know that that's necessarily it either. Anyways, but that's kind of where I was going with it. Tom, what do you think? One of the things I like about it is that they do everything right. You know, it's almost the horror is is secondary to they do everything right in relation to Reagan. They take it to psychiatrists. They do brain scans. What's wrong with this kid? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just a case of like get a, get an exorcist on the phone. You know what I mean? They they go through the motions, and I think maybe that's where the pacing can be off for some people. Whether I believe in it. Um, I don't. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm an atheist. I don't. I don't believe. Um, strangely, though, I mean, I was I was brought up brought up in a Christian household, um, but it's just how I how I've sort of developed as an adult. Um, strangely, though, even though I don't believe in God, I don't believe in demonic possession. This, I think, because I was kind of hardwired as a kid. Um, you wouldn't get me touching a Ouija board. No, no chance. There's still some things I just wouldn't do, which is kind of strange, really, considering. Mm-hmm. But I just, it, maybe it's just because I'm hardwired from, you know, going to Sunday school when I was a kid and bring, being brought up in that environment that there's still some things that I just wouldn't do. But 
do if you ask me whether I believe in it. No, I don't. But you know, you can put your Ouija board away because I ain't going near it. You know, so it's strange. Honestly, that's really funny because I am of the exact same way. While I don't necessarily believe in that, I would never ever play with a Ouija board. I never have played with a Ouija board. I would never even want to attempt it. Because, like, what if, right? Honestly, I don't know. And it's just not worth it to me. Like, it's just it's just, just not worth it. Like, let's say let's say I'm right and there's nothing. It's exactly. still, I, I don't gain anything out of doing it, so why would I bother? So yeah. I'm glad you actually brought that up because I actually feel the exact same way. Never would touch one. So, so on the religious spectrum, I'm somewhere between the two of you. You know, like, I don't, I don't go to church, but I believe in God. So, um, but I'm I, the same as both of you. I would not touch a Ouija board. At all. Uh, my sister <laughs> used to have one, and I would get into fights with her about that thing shouldn't even be in the house. And I'm, I'm not very religious, and I don't believe in demonic possession. But like you said, Brandon, there is no reason to tempt that fate because I don't know everything. And if I'm wrong, that's a terrible thing to have in the house. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I've never read the book. Have you read the book, Tom? Um, I have not. You know, I, I always mean to, and I should get around to it one day. But I, I know it's supposedly, I've read about the case it's based on, because it's supposed to be based on a true story. Um, but depending on who writes that story, um, there's a lot of kind of documents that suggest that it was a hoax, you know, mm. uh, that it wasn't an actual possession. So, so you know, it, that's interesting, but I haven't read the novel, no. Yeah, see, like, I can't compare it to the novel, but even still, watching this movie now, like, my impression after watching this movie is, okay, it's good, I like it, there's some interesting stuff at the end, the the spider crawl up down the stairs is really great, you know, and there's some really interesting imagery in the film, but the end of the day, my impression of this movie, and the only thing I could kind of take away from it, is they wanted to make a movie to shock audiences by having a little girl scream vulgarity at the at the camera. Well, you see, the thing is, William Friedkin at that time, he was a bit of a, a very provocative kind of filmmaker, you know, so the fact that he wanted to shock you, absolutely. There's a great documentary called The Fear of God, which may be on your DVD, I don't know, um, about some of the things he employed in the movie, like at the end, you know, where the priest has given uh, Father Karras his last rites, and he just couldn't get the scene, so William Friedkin slapped him before he did it and that's why he's kind of shaking and stuff mm-hmm. you know William Friedkin yeah he wants to shock you I don't think that's the point of it though I mean if you put these religious you know I'm not religious but I'm very respectful of, of people who are you know if they're doing it in the right way um, and it's still you know having Reagan stab herself with a crucifix saying can we swear on this podcast? I don't know. This one, no. <laughs> okay. So, well, yeah, you know what she says. It, you know what she says. So, yeah. Yeah. If there was demonic possession, they would want to... I kind of see it as this is what would happen. It would be vulgar. It would be flying in the face of God and religious symbols. So, I don't think it's the point of it just, just to try and be shocking for shocking's sake. Mm-hmm. I, I do think that, that that is what would happen, you know? See, I wonder what audiences would be aware of when this came out in 73 because like i i don't i've never studied it i don't know anything about possession but to me what i understand about it and what my church has talked about it is it wouldn't i i can't see that it would be like this where they're like the body's like flying around and being manipulated physically you know that would want to hurt itself right that would that would physically harm itself with objects right like is this this demonic well basically in the movie they say it's the devil the devil itself goes in the little girl and is like destroying her body internally in the way to me it would be like they want to go in and manipulate everything else from the outside because you know from what i understand about the bible the the devil's goal is to give doubt and turn people away from god Mm. Right. Like, so I'm a firm believer that and we're talking Christian stuff here. Like I'm a firm believer that the devil's greatest tool is offense, right? That's mm-hmm. his greatest tool. And people constantly getting offended by things tears people apart and keeps people away from each other and keeping people away from each other continues hatred, 
right, continues anger and amplifies it, right? Mm -hmm. And to me, that's the devil's greatest weapon. And so if I believe in God, I clearly believe in the devil, right? And, but I don't know that I believe in this, in possession such as this. However, if that were to occur based on what I understand, his goal wouldn't be to physically destroy this child because at the end of it, this is giving faith to the mother and this is giving faith to the daughter and bringing faith into the house to cast the demon out, thus strengthening their faith. Right where I think it would be a more of a subtle thing where he would be working as like a Trojan horse from the inside, you know. Am I making myself clear as to what I would interpret it would actually yes. happen? Okay. No, you are to me anyway. Uh... Tom, <laughs> I I kind of got lost halfway, but no, okay, I'm sorry. no, I, I get it. I get it. I I hear what you're saying. Um, that it's almost like. Maybe if it was to happen, it would be a bit more low-key so as to have a long-term effect. But actually, they're just making the good side sort of bolster itself against them and, and have more faith. Is yes. that what you're saying? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <clears throat> so I don't know. Um, but I mean, again, I don't know anything about possession. I've never studied up. I've never read it. So at the end of the day, I mean, I, I'm not going to go and read up on it. Yeah. This movie doesn't make me want to go and read up on it. But that's just from what I know and... So well, I guess maybe there's even that, but it's kind of like a distancing from me from the film. So Patrick, I've been talking for a while. You go. Well, ahead. no. So I actually agree with what you're saying because I would see a possession more like uh, how it was portrayed in the movie The Fallen. I believe it's The Fallen. I haven't seen that one. Uh, it's all right. It's about a it, Denzel Washington's in it. Um, okay. But uh, a demon is jumping bodies to bodies to basically destroy him. But you you could see like it takes over the host to gain something, not just to destroy the host. You know what I mean? Uh, one thing I found interesting about this movie was that back in the 70s, they really had a disdain for uh, psychologists anyway. Like, you see, they tried to do everything. They, all the other doctors tried to, like, do everything they could to get her not to go to a psychologist yet or a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Um, and they kind of talked down about them, which is, is slowly changing through history, which is good. I thought the, the movie was interesting. I liked some of the, like, for 1973, getting, like, the words help me to come up on her stomach. It's talent. I mean, that's not an that's not an easy thing to do in 1973. Uh, the scenes were well done. I just, it's just the pacing issue, which I, I get. I get that that's just the movie time of the movies. But a lot of the other pacing movies I saw, I saw as a kid, so they hold like a nostalgia value now. Where this movie holds none of that because I didn't watch it back then. I guess was this always out in America? It wasn't banned or no. anything like that. Is it always been? Well, I mean, we have a kind of interesting history with it over here. J- just to answer one point you said before, Brandon, mm-hmm. um, it's not actually the devil. I know Reagan says it's the devil, but it's Pazuzu, who is a demon, who is possessing her. And and I think, yeah, it, you know, it's part of the same kind of circle, if you like. But I think a, a demon will have that mischievous aspect to them where they're just going to do something for the for the hell of it. If you like, um, and I think that's what is happening in this case because Pazuzu, Father Merrin, had that history with from back back in the day where he'd performed an earlier exorcism, mm-hmm. which they document in Exorcist: The Beginning, which is a prequel movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting that in England it wasn't banned as such, but we had a load of people. You know, you've heard of the video nasty scare, probably loads of people saying we shouldn't be watching stuff, and I hate. I hate all that kind of stuff. It's a lot better now. We're, we're not really a, um, a censored nation anymore, mm-hmm. but it was denied classification, so you couldn't get The Exorcist for years. And then when I was like 12 or something, my mom got a, a VHS of The Exorcist. Where she got it, I don't know. And we were like, oh, my God. So it, it really had this mystique about it. It built up into this crazy big kind of mystique. Oh my, this is the most evil movie of all time. You know the way if, if you can't get something, then it's always built up to be more than it actually is. And, yeah. and, and I think Exorcist kind of got that mystique in England. Um, so we watched it when I was 12, you know, which was, wasn't a big deal. We were always watching stuff when I was a kid. But it was still like, oh my what have I just seen? So it, I think that's that's helped me um, kind of keep it close and keep it as a movie that I like, that I did watch it when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's always been a, a favorite since then. Mm-hmm. 
Now, which which version did you watch, Tom? I watched the extended version. I borrowed the DVD from my sister. She had it on DVD. Uh, which one did you watch? I watched the original cut. It's probably my preferred cut. I, yeah, the original cut. The original cut, yeah. So, like, so I don't know. There was a couple scenes where it said where I, on the back of the thing, the DVD, it describes a couple extra scenes. I don't, I don't. Based on what I read, I'm like, it doesn't sound like this actually would have changed the plot in any way. You know what I found interesting about? I didn't realize it was even that much longer with the extended cut. But uh, something I found mm-hmm. interesting is there's a lot of things that happen off screen in this movie that they kind of just take for granted. You understand mm-hmm. what happened. Mm-hmm. Give an example. Oh, uh, I can give a few. So, uh, they really don't explain out how the Ouija board possesses her, but I, I guess that's a consensus we kind of just believe. They don't tell you why Father Karas's mom dies in a hospital uh, alone instead of in a hospital because she was in a hospital at one point. Well, so okay, so my interpretation on that is she was alone. She died alone because she wasn't with family. She's alone because she was in the hospital. That's that's my interpretation of that term. I thought I'm pretty sure he said alone in her flat as a line. I th- I think you're right. I, I had a moment of confusion about that as well because they say oh she was there for about three days or something before she was found. So yeah, I was a little confused by that as well. Oh yeah, you're right. She was alone for a few. Yeah, days the, look, there's a scene where Father Karras says I'll come get you and take you out and put you somewhere else, but. Then, like, you have to use a Star Trek term, headcanon, to figure out that, well, he doesn't have a lot of money, so when he takes her out, he can only bring her back home, and then he has to go to work, so she dies alone at home. Mm. I mean, mm. So that's just one. Another one is um, Burke Dennings. His his death is, like, lost over. And Father uh, Father Mer- Merrin, he dies mm. off screen. We see him dead when, when uh, Karas comes back, but he actually dies off screen, so you don't know if Pazuzu killed him or if his heart just gave out because they did talk up you know it almost killed him last time which was whatever uh, 20 years earlier 10 20 years earlier whatever Um, because they do talk early on in the movie that he did an exorcism in the 50s um, whatever they don't go into great detail but they do mention it Mm -hmm. and then when you come back he's when he comes back in the room father Merrin is dead so a lot of stuff happens off screen that kind of makes it all spookier but i don't know if i, I would have liked it better if they just would have given me a one-line answer for why that oh, things happened mm-hmm. yeah the the bert dennings thing i i think it that's a bit odd isn't it because that one really worked there's really me. no detail about Go, that that one really worked for me but yeah keep going tom as to as to your thoughts on it no no it, it it's like because I'm terrible with names, so half the time I'm like, who are they talking about again, <laughs> you know? Um, but but later on, I, I kind of like the way they handled Merrin, and they go in there, he's dead, and Reagan's just sat sort of giggling at the side of the bed. I really do like the way they've done that one. Yeah, the Burke one worked for me a lot, um, because we, we didn't see it happen. It was all left to description, mm. and it was played out later in the film. So everything that happened with him, mm-hmm. we got to see it, but with other characters, right? So, uh, you know, the the father at the end jumped out of the window, right? And things like that. Like, So we got to see exactly what happened just with other characters. They all came into the room. Weird things happened. Craziness happened. The devil pushed him out, right? So, I don't know. That one worked for me. I thought that one was okay. So, so do you think that part of the reason why they didn't show some of these deaths on this on screen was they didn't want to show a child killing someone? Uh, could be. Yeah, could be that. I don't think so, though. I mean, based on the other images that they showed in this, no, I, I, I definitely... know, but it just it just seems weird. That's the one thing they're missing. And also, do you think that uh, Dennings was possessed and tried to jump out the window, or was he pushed or whatever? Because now I'm jumping to the end of the movie, but that's what happens with. Karas is he kills himself to get yes. rid of Pazuzu, which I can talk about why that does why that doesn't make sense either. But yeah, no. Um, so Burke Dennings, I think, would have been pushed where the father willingly yeah, sacrificed himself. So yeah, okay. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. how I think. So um, okay, so Tom, I'm going to ask you a question on a plot point that I don't want you to talk about the sequels for. If this was ever explained in any of the sequels, okay? Because I'm guessing you've seen all the sequels, okay. right? Kate, okay. uh-huh. why did this open in Iraq? Well, just I think it was to show, give a sort of background for Merrin that when when he's facing that statue, it's a statue of Pazuzu. You know, I think it's just giving you a little bit of backstory about mm-hmm. Merrin, really. Okay. 
Because, yeah, even this time, I'm like, man, this this is a lot of intro for this guy. And we don't really get much other than this statue. And mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, that's kind of long. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and again, it, I think it, it does give us that little bit, but it is kind of the the way they made movies at that time as well, just just the pace. And, I mean, Friedkin especially, if you ever watched, you know, The French Connection or something, I think Sorcerer might be a bit more different, but he, he does take his time sometimes. Yeah, like, I've know. got problems with Sorcerer, and there's I think that the reason why Sorcerer doesn't work as well for me is because the opening is incredibly slow as well for Sorcerer, the first half an hour of Sorcerer. Christ. Now, the first hour, if you guys remember from my Wages of Fear discussion, the first hour of Wages of Fear is incredibly slow as well, and it took me multiple viewings nice. to really get into the Wages of Fear, but now the Wages of Fear is one of my favorite movies of all time upon rewatch, and I personally think that that first hour is of vital importance to the story to show maybe they don't need an hour, but I couldn't imagine the movie any shorter now. So I don't know. They could, maybe this is something that would grow on me upon multiple watches as well, right? Like maybe that's part of the mystique of the film is once you've got it, you want to keep watching it and it just adds that mystique to the movie, which is plausible. Like I said, this is the first time after three or four attempts that I finally made it the whole way through. And I'm 37 years old, right? 38 years old now. So <laughs> I don't know. But um, like... I think that there might also be... Sorry, Brandon. I think there might also be a suggestion that uh, Meron has kind of freed Pazuzu early on during that dig, you know, when the when the statue is there and, and so on. I think that there might be a suggestion of that, but I'm not 100%. See, now, that's, that's how I saw some of it, that they're introducing you to the demon that's going to possess her. I mean, I didn't know that when it happened when I first watched it, but I, I kind mm-hmm. of saw it that way later because at the very end... When he, they're fighting uh, the demon, you see a big silhouette of Pazuzu to her right, behind her, mm-hmm. kind of. And it mm-hmm. seems that, like, this, this to me, the way I took it was this demon has just been haunting this priest since the 50s. That he mm-hmm. excised this demon and somehow ended up in an Iraqi desert. I don't know. They don't give a good explanation on this, but it ended up in an Iraqi desert. He then found it, and the statue was broken, which then let Pazuzu out again. And then, happy coincidence, it finds a girl that was in the town that knows him. I mean, it's a little odd, but... Right, which again, for me, like, I didn't catch that connection because one's in Iraq, one's in Africa, and one's in Washington, D.C., right? So... Yeah, it it, it takes a stretch to believe that all those things happened together, but I think that's where they were going with it. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, I, I looked up some of the things about, I didn't read the book either, but I looked up some of the things about the book, like, for instance, in the book, they make, they go to great detail to explain why the Ouija board possessed her, which they kind of, glo- they you know, they just very quickly gloss over in the movie. I don't know, maybe they explain out that connection better in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, and I hope I'm not taking you off not track, Brandon, um, but... The way I kind of see the Ouija board stuff, and it'll be interesting to to know whether that is um, in the book. And I think it's why we spend so much time with the characters and in a very show-don't-tell kind of way. Um, They all have their issues that they're dealing with. For Reagan, it's an absent father. For Karis, it's the the issues with his mom. You know, the guilt he feels about leaving her as a leaving her on her own. He's having a crisis of faith himself. And, you know, evil evil will prey on that. They will prey at you when you're, when you're at your lowest. And I don't think you need to be kind of religious to, to believe that that is the case. And with Reagan, she has the... Her, her father is absent. And, you know, she's got Captain Howdy. She's got this this figure that we don't really know about to talk to you know because mom's busy she you know in an ideal world she'd have dad there too she could speak to both of them but she's speaking with captain howdy and that is pazuzu or the devil or whoever finds in the, the crack in her armor the weakness in in her the the trouble she's having as a as mm-hmm. a way in um so I, that's that's kind of the way i, I, see I agree it. with you 100 percent. absolutely i think that's a that's exactly mm-hmm. what's going on here um 
you know, because she does have that absent father who's who's away, and her mom's busy all the time, and all that's around her, like, she's not from there. They're renting this place in D.C., right? They're, they're not from there. All that they've got around the house is, like, mm-hmm. the cleaning and support staff, right? So she doesn't have yeah, anybody. Yeah. That's the impression that I get. So when she finds this Ouija board, she just starts playing with it, and that's the that was the entryway, and and that's my headcanon for the story as well. So uh, there there's some really great stuff in this movie, you know, like there's some really great imagery, like the the spider walk down the stairs is really shocking, even still, and it's really amazing how it looks. There's a couple of times where they flash cut to like this demon face, right, and it's almost like what did I just see? Did that just happen? Like because it's so quick. You know, and yeah. so I, I really like those things a lot. I, I really like the human portrayal of the the religious figures, like Marin, when he's sitting down there and he's about to take his medication or whatever it is, and and uh, the mom's like, "Do you want a glass of brandy to wash that down with?" And he's like, "I'm not supposed to." Blah blah blah. But thank God, my will is weak. You know, like, and it's it's a funny little joke. Right, because we don't want to have a weak will, right? Like when you're, in, you you want to be strong when you're when you're in religion and whatnot. But he's like, look, this is my one, this is one of my weaknesses is brandy, and it's like that's a very human moment for this person, and I really liked that, you know, mm-hmm. and I really liked that even, and again, I'm sorry with the names, the 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 guy that finishes it off, the the younger priest that that's consulting with it, his answer is like. But, you know, there used to be people used to talk about it, but even the church doesn't believe it in anymore. And um, mm-hmm. now that we've discovered mental health, that we now have an explanation for these things. And this is a person of the cloth that's saying that in this movie. And I like that a lot. I like those human portrayals of these characters in it. So, again, as as much as it sounds like I didn't like this movie... I did. Like, I, I, I gave this a four-star rating on it, you know, watching it and finishing it this time. It's not, I, I don't think it's the masterpiece that most people seem to think that it is. And I think that the, the major draw for taking it away is that the first hour is pretty slow. But I do think upon multiple rewatches, I would probably gain more of an appreciation for this film. Um, and I could come to love it like everybody else does now that I've seen it and now that I see what's there that I've just never seen before, so... So I, one thing I would say is I, I actually like that about the movie too. That um, Father Karras, one of the things about him is that he was he went to Harvard, so he's a very educated man. Like it's very easy to write a movie where the clergy would just be kind of, you know, stark followers of of just religion and not know much else. So they would immediately go to it's a demon possession. But this is a character that bucks that system. Mm-hmm. And he believes no, you have to do every, you have to exhaust every other option first because, and to his knowledge, nobody modern even knew about exorcisms. Like he didn't even realize that there was someone who was doing it back in the fifties. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was a really interesting um, way of of. I don't want to use the word twist because that's not really the right word, but uh, you know, just a, a way of of portraying the characters at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to find out, like at the end, that he becomes possessed in the last second is. It's kind of, that's the twist to me. He didn't even believe in demonic possessions, and then he purposely gets himself possessed just to destroy the the demon. Tom, did you have any final thoughts? Anything else we've missed here? To me, it's it's a classic. I I do love the movie. I I can see where you're coming from with the the pacing and and so on. It's a shame, but I think it's the kind of movie where you need to put that time aside, you know, and just have that expectation that you're going to spend some time with it, spend some time with these people. Um, it'd be interesting if you went back to it in a couple of years, maybe, and, and whether your opinion of it rose a bit. But considering it's interesting, I don't know whether you watch the intro on the DVD where William Friedkin introduces it, and he says that if your takeaway from this is that the world's a bad place and bad things happen to people, then... You know that's what you're going to get from the movie. But he said what he hopes people take from it is that good will uh, triumph over evil. It's it's going to need some work at times, but good is going to triumph over evil. And I think, even though I'm not a religious person, that is my takeaway from it because I don't think you need to be religious. And and when we spend that time with them, and 
you know, they're all having troubles in their lives. I think that is very true to the, the worlds we're in today. All it took was a financial crash and, you know, next minute you have people whispering in your ear about who's to blame and it's not really the people that were to blame for it who get the blame, you know? And and this is what it's saying, you know, we all have these downtimes and that is when evil has its chance to come in and that's what happens in the movie and that's what happens in real life you know mm-hmm. the the banks crashed and then everyone's whispering in your ear about well who's taking the money from your pocket and it's not really the people who are taking the money from your pocket who are getting the blame for it um I, I, and that's what it, it kind of says to me that we all have to kind of really stick together and and good will prevail mm-hmm. you know yeah you got it uh, now, before we go on, uh, before we sign off for the day, I did want to ask you, Tom, do you want to talk a little bit about the sequels? Um, may, you know, maybe I, we will revisit this in a couple of years and maybe we can have you on Franchise Fatigue to uh, to cover them, which is our the other podcast that I do. But uh, uh, how do the sequels uh, hold up? Because I know that Regan is in the second one. Regan and her mom are in the second one. And then I th- think the mm-hmm. the other two of the other ones are prequels and when i was reading up on them they sounded like the same story to me so Mm. i don't know but again i I didn't really look too far into it so okay um i'll jump ahead slightly in that if you are only going to watch one exorcist sequel watch exorcist 3 it's a good movie um exorcist 2 is just completely bonkers (laughs) it's nuts it's like what are you doing (laughs) it's I, I can't get through Exodus 2. I've never sat all the way through it because it's just insane. Um, not a good movie at all. It's got Richard Burton in it just collecting a paycheck. Um, and then Exodus 3 is directed by uh, William Peter Blatty, who wrote the book and wrote the screenplay for this. And it's it's a really good movie. It features Kinderman, you know, the detective, mm-hmm. but it's played by a different actor. I think it's George C. Scott plays him in the movie. And it's... It's really good, um, so definitely check that one out. Now, the prequel was directed by Paul Schrader, and I think um, that's the one co- that's called Exorcist Dominion. Now, he directed this movie, and the studio were like, no, we don't, we don't like it. So they got Rennie Harlan to completely redo the movie. I think, you know, maybe like 20% of the footage... Uh, from the actual Exorcist, the beginning was from the Paul Schrader movie. So Rennie Harlan just completely redid it. So two prequels exist that are completely different, but with mostly the same actors in. So it's a really interesting kind of comparison when when you look at it that way. Um, But I wouldn't say either of them are that great, but um, they're they're worth a look, you know? Yeah, maybe that was it. Because, yeah, there was five listed, so they must have... There must be a version mm. where you can get both versions of that prequel one then. Yeah, yeah, you can get them both. I mean, the Paul Schrader cut, the original one, wasn't released at first, and it, it kind of got this status as this lost classic. Release you the know, Schrader cut. The, <laughs> exactly, you know, and then it was released, and people were like, oh, okay, yeah. I get okay. it, I get it. <laughs> Hide the Schrader cut. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Anyways, yeah. So those that are listening this far along and are wondering why the heck did we talk about The Exorcist on this. So in Doctor's Orders, uh, the season three episode, Commander Tucker had convinced Dr. Phlox to watch The Exorcist. And the next week, Phlox wished he hadn't done so as he began to feel frightened while he was alone on the Enterprise with the crew in stasis. So, uh... Did he say he thought it was slow? Uh, I guess not. It must have been a fast movie on Denobula. So, the Fast and the Exorcist, Tokyo Drift. So. <laughs> Anyways, excellent. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. It was a real pleasure. This was a great conversation. We kind of went all over the place, but I mean, I think that's that's a general conversation that you have when you talk about a movie. It's like, what do you, what does the movie mean yeah. to you? We went off in a couple of different directions, but that's the, that's the conversation that we have, and that's what I like having here on Warp 5. Uh, so, Tom, thank you so much. I'm glad you were a part of this discussion. Thank you for bringing... Uh, some positivity to the discussion. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good job I was here, man. It would have been <laughs> pretty grim. But um, no, it's it's always a pleasure, man. A- another Star Trek, uh, Trek FM, sorry, podcast mm-hmm. I've been on. 
I'm ticking them off the list, man. I'm hoping someone invites me on Deep Space Nine. I've never watched it, but you know, I'm sure we can figure something. <laughs> the, um, out. Yeah, <laughs> it's nice you, to man. have a positive. Like Brandy and I, when we did Bride of Frankenstein, like neither of us really enjoyed it, and we're like, so for 20 minutes, we're like, why did he do this? What's going on? Why did he say this? Like, this doesn't make any sense. I, I had computer issues that day, or I, I would have been here not liking it either. So, <laughs> anyways, Tom, where can people find you online when you're not uh, stabbing yourself with a cross? <laughs> <laughs> well, my my main thing is the Twilight Zone, and if you go to the TwilightZonePodcast.com, uh, that's where my main show is, the Twilight Zone Podcast. And uh, yeah, if you like the Twilight Zone, then please. Do I know check that show, out. boy. That last guest you had on for that reboot, the new one there, he was pretty negative. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, we're never okay. having him on again. What I was his know. name again? Somebody, I can't doesn't remember. Matter. Somebody on the board. <laughs> doesn't matter. Uh, excellent, right on. Well, thank you again so very much for joining us. And, well, The Exorcist is not all we've been discussing here on the network this week, so please take a listen to this clip and see what else you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Literary Treks. But in this case, I like the character in the fact that she's a counselor and a Vulcan because when you go to a counselor... Most of the time, it's about your emotions or dealing with your emotions. So how ironic it is that a Vulcan is the person you go to to figure out how to deal with emotional issues mm -hmm. from a non-emotional person. Earl Grey. Episodic TV is really good for watching in bed before you go to sleep. Because you can go to bed, watch a little 45-minute episode, and by the end, you're almost asleep. So it's, it's like a, a nice little comfort blanket. You're saying Star Trek puts you to sleep? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Actually, yes. Um, even though I love it, it does. If I didn't have on the background, I probably wouldn't sleep. Because I've become so used to it. Interesting. So it's like a, a soothing presence. Oh, yeah. It's that background noise of life. Star Trek, the hum of the, the warp drive. The ready room. Do you feel like there are too many of these arcs, too many of these threads running through a 14-episode season. And I ask that because one of the more interesting stories to me, apart from the Red Angel, the big story, is the stamets Culber story. Mm -hmm. And I think that both the actors, Wilson Cruz and Anthony Rapp, have done an amazing job of portraying this story. The chemistry between them feels so real, and I've really connected with the emotions behind this story. But I feel shortchanged. I feel like we're only dipping in here and there mm -hmm. just enough to remind us that that story is going on. Whereas I would like to see it develop more. And I feel like maybe they're just trying to do too much in too little time. Warp 5. But I think Brandon's right. You can jump to bound and have the same thing. Yeah, you can jump to bound and have the same thing. Because you could have him say, I want to leave them find his replacement whatever whatever happens in between now he decides to stay and there's a problem because this guy wants to stay which plays out all in bound correct so i think i'm not going to be able to drive brandon as crazy as i want to i will say no and that's what else is happening on trek.fm so check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link as well. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Warp 5. That will come right to us. You can also find us on the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. So, Brandon, when you're not laying on a bed that's bouncing all over the room, where can people find you? 
You can find me on Twitter at Brandon Matella. Uh, you can find me over on the Fandom Podcast Network with my friends Chris and Tom doing a show called Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast where we go through all of Hitchcock's films. And you can find me over on uh, the United Federation of Podcast Network with uh, Franchise Fatigue, as I mentioned during the podcast. Uh, Zach Moore from Standard Orbit, he and I have a show we're devoted to movies and sequels and remakes. And that's a whole heck of a lot of fun. Patrick, where can people find you when after an extensively difficult conversation with me, you're not throwing yourself out a window? Uh, well, good luck. But probably on Twitter at MagicDrop5. There's no spaces and the five is a digit. You can also find me popping up in the Babel conference from time to time uh, when, I have, when I have time. But I've been kind of off of social media a bit lately. Just been too busy. And um, you can find me over on the edge on this network with my good friend Amy Nelson. Mm-hmm. Excellent, right on. Well, if you'd like to keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. At this time, we'd like to thank the wonderful associate producers of the show uh, who support us and the network as a whole. Norman C. Lau, Floyd Dorsey, Mike Morrison, Tim Cooper, Justin Ozer, Mark Flessa, Chris Chibuzio, and Jim McMahon. Thank you so much. We truly appreciate it. Well, that's all we've got for you this week. Until next time, remember, you can't be afraid of the wind. Music.